Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualized podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Did You Read with Tim Montgomery. Welcome to Did You Read, the latest edition of the Times Opinion podcast. My name is Tim Montgomery and this week I'm joined by two of our regular columnists, Libby Purvis and Jenny Russell, and also the editor of the Times Daily Political Email, Phil Webster. This week the Defence Secretary apologised after saying that some communities in Britain felt swamped by immigrants. He used a word that he must have known has a toxic resonance in this debate. The Archbishop of Canterbury, who was appalled has pleaded with politicians not to portray individual immigrants as a deep menace. He's right. Politicians are behaving scandalously. The answer to the real problems created by rapid immigration is to change the rules of admission, not to abuse the people who follow them. It is in Labour's interest that UKIP wins the Rochester by-election. Such an outcome would leave the Tories in utter disarray, fearing further defections with a question mark over the future of David Cameron. But they can't afford to say that which is why they are campaigning hard there. Why? Because otherwise Cameron's message, vote UKIP, get Labour, has added salience and UKIP might come for them next. Whatever the Director of Public Prosecutions says, cameras in court would be disastrous. Television would pick sensational cases, edit for effect and place a worse burden on witnesses and relatives in the gallery. The intrusive presence of a huge unseen audience without respect would work against justice. Witnesses would be more unwilling to come forward, barristers more aggressive, as in the Pistorius case. So, thank you. We'll come to Libby's and Phil's topics a little bit later. But, Jenny Russell, we're going to start with yours. And we've had an increasingly heated debate about the issue of immigration. It's the issue that once we were told we couldn't debate, and now we seem to debate all of the time. <laughs> but the latest catalyst in the debate is uh, the Defence Secretary, Michael Fallon, using the word swamps in the broadcast interview on Sunday. David Blunkett, the former Labour Home Secretary, wrote in Tuesday morning's Daily Mail, largely in defence of Michael Fallon, saying that actually politicians knew to use the sort of rough and tumble language that the public use, but much more importantly, it's vital to address 
the issue and the fact is that communities such as the one that David Blunkett has represented for a number of years in Sheffield, to quote him, you know, are feeling a lack of interpretation services, that there is exploitation by rogue landlords and that there's a lot of stress and pressure on public services. Well, I absolutely agree with David Blunkett about that. And we know that politicians for 10 years and, and more have been ignoring the complaints of people who are actually confronted with the hard realities of having a great many low-paid people who are struggling to compete with them for jobs and for houses and for school places and for doctor surgeries arriving in their communities. It's absolutely right that we should be discussing all those issues and that we should be talking about how to make life easier for people who are living in those conditions. But what is wrong is to start blaming the people who have themselves arrived or to start using terms like this which sound as if people are being the people already here are being drowned by outsiders and the Archbishop of Canterbury says that already his parish priests are reporting that there's been an upsurge in racist attacks which is always what happens when politicians start portraying immigrants as themselves being a threat rather than their presence causing how, how problems. Do, how do we know that, Jenny? Is it really the racist attacks, which all of us would deplore and condemn, but is there really any evidence that it's the language used by politicians oh, rather um, than the actual presence of large numbers of people in communities oh, oh, no, causing no, pressures on public services and the job market? It's very direct. Um, I was editor of The World Tonight, um, perhaps... 14 years ago when William Hague suddenly decided to make immigration a big mm. issue in the election yeah. and um, he put down um, an early motion debate in the Commons, I can't remember the exact terminology, and then he made several speeches about it and there were several the monitoring... foreign land he was on about, wasn't That's he? That's right. And Britain becoming a foreign land, yeah. And it was suddenly making sure that um, he got the Tories being tough on immigration into the political arena, which it hadn't been for some time. There were several monitoring groups who were working on racist attacks, particularly in East London. They shot up and it went up measurably from, say, I can't remember, you know, 100 attacks in a month to 526 and so on. And it was very direct. People f feel that they've got permission to start being, to start feeling menaced by the strangers around them. Then they will respond. Libby Purvis. I think that is an absolutely fascinating statistic, which I hadn't heard before. And well, I, I, I can't trust those statistics with my memory, but I know that they went up because we were following it carefully. No, that, no, that, that slightly makes me think differently because I was slightly irritated about the incredible opportunist grandstanding over the swamped word because people were thinking, ooh, mosquitoes, alligators, swamps. Actually, to me, because I go around in small boats, swamped just means <laughs> there's too much and the thing is no longer stable. It is wallowing and it might sink. And frankly, outside London, I mean, London is kind of special case here, but go outside London, go to Lincolnshire, you know, go to, to parts of the north where you have got communities which feel in that sense of wallowing, you know, we can't quite keep things going. I don't Nothing doubt that. works. The schools aren't working. There isn't space, and people are not speaking English, and that panics us. Uh, I think this is all perfectly natural. I'm sorry to hear that people that that yobs in the street are so very responsive to what politicians say. Why does this not work in the other direction? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it does to some extent. I mean, take gays as an example. You'd have to say that politicians pretty much led on the acceptability of gays in the social arena. And that's that's really had an effect. So I think 
actually the use of language in public does make a difference. But I completely agree with you about what's happened to these communities. If you remember Margaret Hodge, when was it, um, eight or nine years ago, started talking about the difficulties facing her constituents mm. in Barking. And she said, it's not that these people are innately racist and there's nothing nasty about them, but their lives have been absolutely transformed mm. from underneath them. And she was leapt upon by, by the Labour Party at that point. She was not allowed to say and that, was that her constituents and that, had good had And that was vital for her knocking back the BNP in Exactly, her because she was honest about it. But surely but the, I reason think the, for this, but the reason so for this political panic that, that goes mm. on now is just simply that we do not have the authority and we have no signs or prospects of getting the authority within the EU to prevent the free movement yes. of Labour. And the rules do not seem to permit people who cannot find jobs or do not find jobs to, be, to, to leave. And that's why people always panic about things they can do nothing about. It's yeah. like all of us on the train saying, oh, the weather, yes. know, the train is late, the train is late, and you get in a rage. Yes. So, for, yeah. for Phil Webster, that, that is the policy issue here, isn't it? That David Cameron has promised to do something about um, border control across the European Union. It was presented as his um, Thatcher movement, and we had a lovely cartoon by Morton Morland in Monday's mm -hmm. Times where actually the Thatcher figure turned out to be Angela Merkel, who slapped Cameron down and said, no way are we going to interfere or compromise the European Union's freedom of movement principle. Yeah, this, I is, mean, a, this Tories, is a big problem for the Prime Minister. It is. The Tories are in a bit of a dither and this, this, the business over the remark by Michael Fallon shows it. I mean, Michael Fallon, I think, is one of the quite reasonable Tory MPs and I think he probably realised the moment he'd said the word that he shouldn't have used that word. Oh, you think it was an accident? I really do, in Fallon's mm. case. Uh, knowing Fallon quite well, I think, I think it was a mistake by him. Because this the, was then, famously a word used by Margaret Thatcher in, in the late 70s, when the National Front was on the rise, yeah. and it was seen that her muscular approach to this issue, maybe the language was subsidiary, but it did help defeat the NF at that time. It, it, oh, also, well, the, it also ensured that uh, immigration became uh, quite a big issue in the 1979 election. But uh, I think there's been a, a bit of an overreaction. It, uh, Downing Street on Sunday were running around for hours deciding what to do about this one word. Finally, they slapped him down in a comment late on. Then we have Fallon carrying the story into a second day by apologising on the record for what he said. And then we have Blunkett this morning, who, again, in the past, has used the word swamped in relation to asylum seekers, sticking up for Fallon and saying, you know, he was speaking good sense, he shouldn't have been slapped down. It all shows, really, that the conservative immigration policy is in a bit of a mess at the moment because Cameron just doesn't know how to respond. I think he thought Merkel was going to be far more supportive on this issue and at least uh, allow some room for manoeuvre. But it appears from what Merkel said at the weekend to the Sunday Times, what Schauble said to the Times yesterday, that there really is no room for the manoeuvre on this subject of freedom of movement. Quite where he goes next, I don't know. I think that the only place for them to go on this is with access to benefits and access to social housing and access to tax credits. And of course, the problem that we've got is that you can't, under EU law, make different arrangements for people from outside 
outside the EU from those that apply to British citizens. And therefore, I think they have to move very fast to establish some basic contributory principle to those things in the British welfare system, because that would solve the problem. Almost no one in Europe has got a non-contributory welfare and housing offer in the way that we do in England, which is a great attraction to people who come here. It's also the case that Britain is, I think I read a statistic uh, I quit trade statistics with you, Jenny. Um, a statistic that Britain had, I think, in the last couple of years, created more jobs than the rest of the European Union put together. Our economy mm. is growing incredibly strongly. When you've got the kind of youth unemployment that you have across Europe, why wouldn't people be coming across the continent to, to get, come here for work? Yep, I think it's a terribly difficult issue, and I think Labour they've got to work to be, on it. Uh, Labour seems to be going down the benefit route and the having been told by a lot of people they shouldn't get involved in this at all Ed Miliband is, is now making several speeches on the question of immigration and uh, he's going down the benefits route also going down the, the whole area of preventing the exploitation of foreign workers which is another way of saying protecting British workers Yes, by not letting them moment. undercut their own and, and, and potentially the minimum wage becomes an issue because one of the arguments against the kind of immigration of low-skilled labour that we have seen and economists dispute the effect of immigration on wages but there is certainly some evidence that wages are forced down by immigration and so a slightly higher minimum wage protects British workers from On the other hand pressures. it also attracts more people to come because they th realise that they'll have a higher standard of living when they work here. Libby Purvis, final word on this topic. As to the benefits route I just think we should remember that when you do take away benefits and housing rights from people that's an awful lot more people begging on the street. On that note we will move on to our second topic which is uh, yours Phil and no party has a uh, fan the flames of the immigration debate more than UKIP and they are hopeful for a victory in the looming Rochester by-election which will give them two MPs in Parliament. How does this affect Labour? That's your topic for today's podcast. Well I think a great game of bluff is going on here. I think Labour retrospectively rather regretted fighting hard in Newark and ended up in a situation where the Tories managed to hang on there and see off the UKIP threat. Now we know that Labour cannot win at Rochester even though Labour finished second in the general election. The only poll has put them well down in third place. It's a seat, a seat they held only two general elections a ago. Absolutely. They've held it but they, they have no chance of winning and they know that and it's obviously in their interests that UKIP beats the Tories because that sows further confusion in the Tory party. It puts a big question mark over Cameron's leadership. But they just can't. They can't be seen to go along with it. They have to fight this quite hard. And you've had a, a string of shadow ministers going down there. We've had Milliband down there. We've had Ed Balls down there twice. Harriet Harman several times. They have to be seen to be fighting this seat. They know that if they get a derisory vote in Rochester, that's also very dangerous for them because suddenly it does add evidence to the argument that UKIP can damage Labour in its southern areas as well. How, how much um, trouble, Jenny Russell, is Ed Miliband in at the moment? There's a lot of focus on David Cameron's difficulties, which we might return to in a minute, but the problems that he's having in Scotland, this is the week that Joanne Lamont... Um, resigned a Scottish Labour leader. The Greens are getting to eat a little bit at Labour's left flank. And then, of course, there's his inability to, to seemingly talk to the working-class Labour base, which is giving UKIP an opportunity. 
how bad is it going to get for him? Well, I think it's going to get worse. I think fundamentally he's in a worse position than David Cameron, as I've been saying for a long time, although the polls look as if they are going to turn for Labour. He's actually managing the party and his relationships with people in it extremely badly, and not to mention his relations with the electorate. And I think that um, he's on a route now not to be the largest party at the next election. The Scottish Labour Party, as we know, is in a state of absolute fury with him, but so are lots of members of the London Labour Party. This is not a cohesive big tent. This is not a party that feels as if it's prepared to take power, nor does it have the allies that it needs within its own organisation, let alone outside them. Because there's an opinion polls, we're, we're recording this on Tuesday, the latest opinion polls that we have seen have Labour and the Conservatives tied. Mm-hmm. One had them tied on 30%, I think one had them tied on 32%. This is a very bad position for Labour to be in Libby Purvis six months ahead of an election when there's a tendency in elections for the public to move towards the status quo oh, as elections get closer and also my theory i don't know whether you agree with this is the more people see david cameron versus ed Miliband, the worse that's going to be for labor i think the- open wide and tuck in to spooning with mark wogan the brand new visualized podcast where mark takes you on a unique culinary journey blindfolded with a dollop of light-hearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting, and a sprinkle of top-tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman, and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. We're in exactly, Labour's in exactly the same position that the Tories were in the time when they were getting through sort of a leader at the speed of Kleenexes, <laughs> uh, the, you know, Duncan Smith and so on. Uh, because I do think that after a long, a long time in power, people, there's this huge sort of backwash of general kind of fed upness and, well, they mess things up, so stay, you know, mm. hold on to nurse. Uh, I'm very interested that Phil says... Um, that uh, it would leave uh, a UKIP win in Rochester would leave the Tories in utter disarray, you know, with David Cameron in trouble. I think they should tough it out. By-elections are always flaky. By-elections are protest votes. By-elections are big flounces. And and I, <laughs> I really think that David Cameron should try and soar above the whole thing. And if he gets more defectors, he should laugh and say, you know, good riddance. And then try and get some more of the right-wing Labour, Labour MPs. Possibly Je- I, think the pro- the I really think he's got defectors. to try and be brave here. He's really no, got no. to try and be brave. And I, also, I think... You're taking the, the more, Matthew Paris position. The more, yeah. the, def- the, more the defectors are, are sort of 
of mocked. You know, it's brilliant that Mark Reckless is called Reckless. You know, that's great. <laughs> you know, they've seen the cover of Private Eye. Any you know, more with reckless, like reckless, that? reckless, homeless and shameless. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the defectors. I, I really think David Cameron should try and tough it out and not allow himself to be seen in utter disarray. I think Webster, you Mil- Mil- I mean, Mil- we, Miliband has been criticised for having a 35% strategy. I'm afraid that's looking a bit optimistic at the moment. That's but, why he was criticised for it, because people said right at the beginning, if aim for 35%, you won't get it. Well, You've got to have right. a broader appeal in the first place. And with, with this uh, attack, this multifaceted attack from UKIP, Greens, everywhere else, it, it's looking bad. But the one thing that could come out of this in Scotland is that they do choose a leader who is capable of taking on the SNP. It looks to me as if it's coming down to a left-right battle up there with Jim Murphy, the Blairite, being one of those two. If they go for Murphy, personally, I think it gives them a proper chance of taking on the SNP up there. He's no establishment figure. He's not liked by Ed Miliband, which will certainly help him up there. And... Uh, that's the one glimmer of light I see for Labour in Scotland. The, but moment. the one Jim, way they could possibly prevent themselves losing, but losing Jim, a dozen Jim, Jim, seats. Jim Murphy, though, he's sort of pro-war Blairite figure. Hmm? Right? Certainly he's a good performer, I accept that. But is he going to appeal to the sort of more left-wing electorate of Scotland? But that is the problem. He, uh, and that's why they may not go for him. I think he, 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 is, he, he is certainly seen as on the right. Although I think, you know, Blair was reasonably popular in Scotland. Until, well, imagine, until having, end, yeah. imagine having a left-wing party where the best that can be said for a split in it is that somebody who might lead the new faction in Scotland doesn't get on with the leader. <laughs> I mean, it really doesn't bode well for running a government, does it? I, I should say to all those who are listening who are Times subscribers, and if you're not, why not? Please go to thetimes.co.uk slash Comment Central, where not only can you subscribe to this podcast, you can also access some articles that provide some background to some of the issues that we've been discussing today. And on that list, I will put the leader in Tuesday's Times, which talks about how the battle for Scotland the Scottish Labour Party could be a proxy actually for the battle for the left Mm. in the future how the left in many other parts of the world is breaking up and we might be beginning to see the breakup of the left in Britain just as we see UKIP uh, tearing at the right hand side of the Conservative Party but before we go on to our final topic a question to you Jenny um, Mm. Libby's point that Cameron should rough out uh, a Rochester defeat that he should accept more defections if necessary he should sort of take a here I stand I'm not going to move from the, the moderate centre ground to paraphrase um, arguments that for example Matthew Paris has made on the Times' pages. Is that the right strategy for him? That's his instinct actually Right. It's not been his. In- it may be his instinct, but what he's been doing recently, he's been he's been moving yes. UKIP. Yes, away. he might be, but his instinct has been to to stay still. So he's obviously felt you know pushed or advised to do something else. I think his problem is that he was pretty confident right at the beginning that Rochester was winnable for the Tories, mm. and so he he made it plain to everyone that he wanted them to go and campaign there, and he thought that Reckless was quite personally unpopular, mm. whereas he was sanguine about Carswell in a way. He said Carswell's always been unusual. Mm. Carswell's always. Been 
been a rebel cause or has got a personal following and he's following his principles. But he thought Reckless was um, an unpopular man who in many ways had never been a proper Tory. Mm. And so he pinned his colours to the mast, if you like. We can win here. We will send in cabinet ministers and MPs in strength and we will swing it. So I think to that extent it's damaging to him. But I hope that he does decide not to not to go any further. I think you can talk about the difficulties with immigration and you can try to come up with solutions, not because UKIP is making the running, but because of the very real social problems that we've all been discussing. And that's why he should do it. I've got a bet with Matthew Goodwin, the uh, academic who um, follows UKIP very closely, that UKIP won't win Rochester. Am I going to... I'm going to have to pay what, for what you, lunch. You, you think I? they I, won't? Phil, well, Phil, Phil Webster? No, I, actually, I was going to come in there and, and, and voice a little bit of caution about Rochester. We've had one meaningful poll that, that put UKIP 13 points ahead. What I what struck me about that, that was poll... was before the Tory candidate had been selected. And, right. and it was also a poll commissioned by UKIP. Now, that doesn't mean the poll is inaccurate. It was done by Comrades, reputable firm, and all of that. But it told me that UKIP knew that they had to get a bandwagon going at the start of this campaign to get the kind of result they got in mm. Clacton. And it, it's quite interesting that they were dead pleased when it came up with the result it did, but it did show they really, they had to spend quite a bit of money on that poll. And Ten it was, grand they cost, don't yeah, they? And it, it does suggest to me that it might just be that little bit tighter than you think, so don't give up on your cash okay, yet. I may, I may still have a free lunch. I'd, I'd put a fiver on UKIP losing and I won a fiver on the Scottish referendum. Again, the polls being against me. I, I know more than the polls. Well, Good, before we I get make, rich following Libby. Absolutely. Before follow I make any more that, bets, I will come that. to you, Libby. Uh, definitely. <laughs> and Libby Purvis, it's, it's your uh, topic that you've chosen for us uh, today. Um, a lot of the world has been mesmerised by the Pistorius trial. Um, I can't say I was one of them, but um, it's reawoken the debate about whether we should have cameras in courts. There have been some limited experiments in the UK system already, but you're again it. Absolutely disastrous. And the fact that the Director of Public Prosecutions, Alison Saunders, sort of says, you know, that following the Pistorius trial, you know, she feels there could be transparency and benefit and so on. And it means she did not watch the Pistorius trial. She did not see, <laughs> she did not see the barracking, the the incredible intrusiveness, the um, the way that the that the the, uh, the the barristers played up to it. I mean, a very distinguished South African lawyer has sort of said that it did cause badgering and taunting of witnesses even when witnesses are not being shown uh, you hear their voices you hear the quaver the, the fear the terror the nervousness mm -hmm. in their voices one witness uh, who'd asked not to be shown on camera which you know what was allowed there her picture gets flashed up because somebody gets it off a university website and it's put oh, on television okay. and mm -hmm. it's there and the judge says oh this is very terrible I must tell the media not to behave like this yeah but it's up there mm -hmm. I think the effect on the effect on witnesses the effect on on defendants as well the effect on victims be absolutely immense i mean if some disastrous crime comes close to me or my family or if i'm a witness and i have to go into court and i know that it's not just the people who have queued up who are sitting there in silence who are being made to behave by the judge who are not you know who are having to pay attention and stay throughout it's not just them 
that are watching, but it's a whole lot of people lolling around in their pants, eating crisps and saying, ooh, nasty blouse. You know, ooh, you know, ooh eyes a bit close together. You know, I don't, she doesn't look as if she's telling the truth. It's Gogglebox. It's reality TV. Excuse me, How the DPP, Gogglebox is fantastic. My yes, husband makes it. Carry on. Carry on, Libby. Gogglebox is a fantastic programme and it shows us a lot of people lolling happily in front of the telly, sort of pointing at entertainment, which has been put on as entertainment. If they're watching reality TV, the people have volunteered to be on reality TV. If they're laughing at Parliament, these MPs, it's their job to be seen. It is not the job of ordinary, decent, quiet people giving evidence in a serious case of law. It is not their job to be glared at by the goggle boxers. Well, that's, not. that's the fantastic case for prosecution. Um, <laughs> Jen, does Jenny or Phil, I, either of you support televising the courts? I read uh, Libby, and it's a very powerful piece, and, uh, and I take everything that she said about the Pistorius case even the line, the, the suggestion that, you know, it may well have had an impact on, on the outcome. However, where the written press goes, television usually follows in the end, usually at a years, decades afterwards. And uh, Parliament was the obvious case where television came in much, much later. And I don't think anybody would argue now that there's anything wrong with televising Parliament. I would argue for uh, a, a Blairite third way on this, which is uh, I think the judge should be given discretion. He had discretion, or she had discretion in the Pistorius case to blank out Pistorius himself at certain points and the witnesses. I don't think there would have been any problem if the hacking trial at the Old Bailey had been on television. I think the people like Rebecca Brooks, Charlie, all the other journalists involved in that case were perfectly capable of handling themselves in front of a, of a television screen. I happened to give evidence at Leveson. I completely forgot there was uh, cameras on us there. I think there, there are certain cases where it would be appropriate. There are cases, the kind that you mentioned, where, where there are vulnerable witnesses we know in advance that vulnerable witnesses are going to be called where the judge could well decide no. But I think, it, I think it's something that it will eventually come I because that's the way it always happens. I, 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 I hope it doesn't eventually come. I think we're perfectly capable of resisting it. And uh, as even to the hacking trial, if, if I had had my, my sex life hacked, and had to give evidence at the hacking trial, I wouldn't be terribly happy even about my voice being mm. in this very public arena. I'm a strong believer, and I mean, it's, it's, it's supported by all these public events, the Times runs and things like literary festivals, that there is a difference between being in the same room, breathing the same air, paying quiet attention to something, and banging it out there on the telly. Have you looked at the clips on YouTube of the Pistorius trial or the O.J. Simpson trial with that witness trying to put her hair down over her face because she was so shaking with fear and terror. Why should the telly-watching idle public be allowed this particular privilege? They can read the transcripts or they can queue up in the rain and go. I think, I think we know where you're coming from on this issue, <laughs> Libby. What, what we don't know is where Jenny Russell's coming from. Are you with Phil or Libby, Jenny? Well, I'm married to a television producer who has um, made his uh, living over the past 20 years filming people in all kinds of situations. He invented faking it, wife swap, undercover boss, secret millionaire, and now Gogglebox. And, and there ends the commercial. <laughs> no, I'm saying, and, I, and so I'm familiar with these sorts of arguments. Yeah. When we were once rung out of the blue by a television crew who said, would we like to be filmed on our summer holiday in Provence, our answer was absolutely as one are you insane? Which of us would want television cameras in our faces misrepresenting us on air? And I think that 
Libby is completely right that this would distort the judicial system. People would act up to it. We would see the highlights on television. We'd jump to conclusions about whether people were guilty or not and about the credibility of witnesses. And people rightly have an expectation of being taken very seriously when they appear in a courtroom. And they're often terrified. You don't have to be in a murder trial or rape trial or a sexual abuse trial in order to feel scared. I know somebody had their bicycle stolen and when they turned up at court they were told that the gang that had stolen it were going to get them and follow them if they gave evidence. Now it's so much more frightening to go into a simple case like that that nobody would think deserved any special protection. If you know that your face is then going to be on screen, they can study it, they can find out where you live, they can use facial recognition techniques, mm-hmm. you lose your anonymity and you're up as a, as a merciless figure of public opprobrium. Can I just take on one thing, though, that you said, the the idea that the public, it's all a little bit too complicated for the public to... No, no, I'm not saying it's too complicated, but because they'll only see the highlights, all they'll get is somebody else's version of the truth. As Libby says, if you sit there and you sit through a trial, you can form your own opinion about people. If you're getting a few clips on the news, you'll have an entirely distorted view. I also also think that um, there's a problem in in what Philip was saying, that judges could could say no, you know, certain cases and so on. There would be some people, some defendants, in cases like that who would say, oh, well, this is secret justice now. This is secret justice. You know, they're doing this because they want to be secret. Mm. And that would cause a problem because people are divided into those who long to be on television and out of whom Jenny's husband makes, no doubt, a very good living. And people who really, really don't want ever to be on television. And we sometimes forget, because there's so much reality television, there are an awful lot of people out there who really, really want to be private. Watch Vox Pops in the street, watch them ducking away, watch them seeing a news crew and not walking towards it and saying, hello, mum, going in the other direction. We must respect the right of people to be just themselves within themselves. But but in practice, I think this would... I I mean, there are thousands of courts around the country, and the the, the very cost of televising would be huge. I think in practice this would only happen in very few It'd high profile cases. It would be the sexy ones and the sexy ones are the ones where people are often most sensitive. Okay well I think we will have to stop it there but just yes or no answers whatever the rights and wrongs do we think that the courts will be televised? Libby? No. I think not actually. Eventually. Phil? Eventually. Well Libby, Jenny, Phil, thank you very much. Thank you to Dave McGuire, my producer, for putting this podcast together. Most of all, thank you to you for listening. We'll be back next week. Open wide and tuck in to Spooning with Mark Wogan, the brand new visualised podcast where Mark takes you on a unique culinary journey, blindfolded. With a dollop of lighthearted chat, a spoonful of hilarious blindfolded food tasting and a sprinkle of top-tier guests like Jimmy Carr, Claudia Winkleman and Joe Wicks. In partnership with Gressingham Duck, download their free recipe booklet for tips to dine in with Duck. Check out delicious new episodes of Spooning with Mark Wogan every Thursday 